Jesus came into the world, but then left the world, promising to come back into the world. Jesus came into the world, then left the world, promising to come back into the world. By the way, the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ is well established outside of the Bible. Outside of the Bible. So some atheists would want to dispute the sentence I just said, but the historicity of the person of Jesus is very well established. He was a real guy who really walked on this earth. Now, of course, he did more than just live and walk on this earth. He taught and said many things. And one of the things he said and taught was that he's going to die and rise and then come back. And he, he did die and he did rise. Hasn't yet come back, has he? He hasn't yet returned. So for 2,000 years now, people like us have claimed, who have claimed to be his followers, we're actually claiming to follow someone we've never seen. We've never heard the sound of his voice or his facial expressions. We've, we've claimed for 2,000 years as Christians to follow a God we can't see. This is why many people, among other reasons, claim that the Christian faith is irrational. But to be fair, people who would say that need to also say pretty much every faith, every tradition, every religion makes a similar claim. All religions make these kind of claims that you know, we, we believe in something even though we can't really see it. So how do we know who really knows God? How do we know who really knows God? How do we know if we really know this Jesus we say we know? How do you know? How do you know? that you really know this Jesus you claim you know? How do I know that I really know this Jesus I claim to know? This Jesus, we just sang songs to Him, about Him. How do we really know that we know Him? Well, this is what the letter of 1 John is all about in the New Testament. There's this letter, 1 John, written toward the end of the first century to a group of churches around the, the area of Ephesus, which is western, modern-day western Turkey, by one of Jesus' first followers, the Apostle John. And in this letter that John wrote, we learn that those who truly know God are really characterized by three things. Those who truly know the true God, believe certain things, live a certain way, and love a certain way. They believe certain things, live a certain way, love a certain way. They have specific beliefs about who Jesus is, what he did. They have a specific kind of love for a specific kind of people, namely the church, other people who share those beliefs about Jesus. And then they live in a very specific and distinct kind of way. As I've said in the letter of 1 John, John is giving us three tests, the doctrinal test, the moral test, the relational test, what we believe, how we love, how we live. And like three flowers, and he's like a bee buzzing around each flower. And he keeps going back to flower after flower. The, the letter's not neatly outlined. Amen? <laughs> he's kind of all over the place. He's, he's buzzing around these three tests, these three flowers again and again and again. 
In our passage today, he's buzzing around the moral test, the flower of the moral test again. The kind of things he's going to say today in the passage we're going to look at today actually could be quite confusing, as, as you'll see. And they've led many to believe that Christianity is only about morals, about cleaning our lives up, looking good on the outside. You might have asked someone, as you've maybe been trying to share the gospel, you know, or, hey, are you a Christian or do you follow Jesus? And someone might say something like, well, I'm trying to. I'm trying to be. <laughs> and that's, that, that means actually they don't understand Christianity or they don't understand the gospel because the gospel is a message that creates a kind of life, not a kind of life in and of itself. But if you don't have a certain kind of life, John is going to say, if you don't live a certain kind of life, then your claims to believe in the Jesus you believe in are false, are false. So we have to take the moral test very, very, very seriously. The moral test is simple. I'll summarize these verses like this. John is simply saying there's a fundamental connection between um, knowing God and practicing righteousness. There's a fundamental connection between knowing God and practicing righteousness. Those who claim to know God will live a certain way. There are things they won't do that everyone else is doing and things they will do that no one else is doing. There's a fundamental connection between knowing God and doing righteousness. But our lifestyle as Christians isn't conformed or defined by our own moral preferences. We believe as Christians that there's an objective standard of morality outside of ourselves. In other words, we don't get to decide what this moral life looks like. Our goal is already defined for us in the Bible. And the command is everywhere. We've even seen it already in 1 John. The command is to live a life conformed to the life of Jesus. That our life should increasingly look like the life of Jesus Christ. We know that the world would say... Be true to you. But Jesus says, no, be true to me. We know the world says, discover yourself. But Jesus says, deny yourself. The world says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. In other words, the Christian life is one that is radically devoted to Christ. Radically devoted to Christ. Being a Christian means looking more and more like Christ. It's, it's more than that, but it's not less than that. John is actually going to do something in our passage today, though, than something more than just say, hey, if you say you're a Christian, you know, live like Jesus. He's going he's gonna to say that, and he has said that already, but he's saying something actually more than that. He's saying this. He's saying, Jesus coming into this world, dying for our sins... And then promising to come back into this world is all the reason you need to live like Jesus. In other words, John isn't just giving a straight command. Though God has the right to do that. As an apostle, he has the right to do that. In other words, he could just say, hey, live like Jesus. Don't ask questions. Just do it. Just obey. Just conform. Just look like Jesus. Live like him. But he's not doing that. John's argument is rather that Jesus' first coming and his second coming compel us to live like Jesus. Compel us to live lives that look like Jesus' life. 
We don't have to be told what to do because Jesus' first and second coming is a stronger incentive to holiness than sheer command. So should we be holy? Yes. But here in the title of the sermon, is there are incentives to holiness. holiness. There are reasons. This text gives us reasons why we should increasingly look like Jesus. That's the main point of our passage, actually. That Jesus' first and second coming compel us to live like Jesus. Jesus' first coming and second coming compel us to live like Jesus. We're in 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 10. So if you haven't found a Bible already, please do so. 1 John chapter 2, the end of the chapter, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 10. We're going to see first how Jesus' first coming compels holiness in 3, 4 through 10. And then secondly, how Jesus' second coming compels holiness in 2, 28 through 3, 3. So we're actually going to take the passage in reverse order so that we can treat Jesus' first coming first and second coming second. But what I want to do is read the whole text and then look at the second part of it first. Make sense? Great. 1 John 2:28 through 3:10. And now little children abide or live, remain in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone, verse 4, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Jesus' first and second coming compel us to live like Him. Number one, Jesus' first coming compels holiness, compels us to live like Him. This is chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. John's argument in 3, 4 through 10 is that Jesus' first coming, right there in verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, 
Jesus' first coming was to take away sins. You know that He appeared. He appeared. He came to take away sins. So that God's people are now those who put away sin. And then John actually says that this reveals whether we're children of God or children of the devil. So in these seven verses, Jesus is saying, excuse me, John is saying that Jesus came to take away sin so that we can put away sin. And those who are doing that reveal that they're children of God. Those who aren't doing that reveal that they're children of the devil. That's all John is saying here. Verse 5 says that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. How did Jesus take away sins? How did, he, how did Jesus take away sins? Well, John has already told us in chapter 2, verse 2, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Great, big, fancy Bible word, propitiation. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful word, and actually it's super important for your understanding of what Jesus hung on the cross, or what was happening to Jesus while He hung on the cross. While He hung there, picture Him. Propitiation says we should picture Him like a sponge. He was soaking up the wrath of God that our sins deserve. The sinless one was soaking up the justice of God, the displeasure of God for us sinners. So taking away sins means propitiation for sins. It means that He absorbed the displeasure of God in our place. Drinking every drop of God's justice towards sinners. But he says more. John says more. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. What does take away sins mean? Chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus' death atones for sin, absorbs wrath, satisfies God's justice, and washes us. It clears our debt and cleanses our souls. Jesus' blood washes the dirty stain of sin off our souls. Jesus' blood. Isn't this interesting? This is the mystery of the gospel. Blood, blood, blood washes us. But not just any blood. The blood of the spotless Lamb of God. The blood of the Son of God washes our dirty souls clean. So that over in chapter 3 again, chapter 3 verse 5, when it says, you know that Jesus appeared to take away sins, that's what he's talking about. He means that through Jesus' death, our sins can be forgiven. They've been atoned for. God's wrath has been assuaged or absorbed, turned away. And our sins have been removed or washed away, cleansed. Like the hymn says we just sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. All of our sins have been taken away. Don't you love that word? Verse 5 again. Take away sins. He took them away. He took them away. They were yours, and He stole them. <laughs> they became His. 2 Corinthians 5.21 The righteous one hung on the cross for the unrighteous ones, taking what is ours so that He could give us what is His. The forgiveness of sin through the death of Jesus on the cross is the heart of Christianity. As I said earlier, Mason wrote about this in our newsletter this month. There's more that could be said 
This is the foundation of the house. There's more walls and more furniture to talk about. More things going on on the cross. But this is the foundation. Without it, you lose Christianity. Without this beating heart, the whole thing dies. Without penal substitutionary atonement, we don't have salvation. We don't have heaven. We don't have forgiveness. We don't have God. Jesus appeared, verse 5. He appeared. He came to take away sins. Have your sins been taken away? Have your sins been taken away? Are you happy about that? Isn't that so good? You're like, John, I'm a huge screw-up. Me too. You have no idea, John, what I've done. I don't. All your sins taken away. My sin, oh, the... Isn't this beautiful? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is knelt to the cross and I bear it no more. He appeared to take away sins. But in this text, John is actually using the death of Christ to take away sins to, to make a more specific point than the one I'm making. At the end of verse 5, look what he goes on to say. You know He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. In Him there is no sin. So like the sacrificial animals in the Old Testament, Jesus had to be without blemish in order to be an acceptable sacrifice for sins. But John isn't making that point here. He's bringing up Jesus' sinlessness to make a more practical point. He's saying that anyone who claims to know God yet lives in unrepentant sin can't claim to know Jesus because Jesus is without sin. Let's read 5 and 6 together. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Do you see the logical flow of thought? Jesus came to take away sins. He doesn't have sin. So if you have sin, then you don't know the one who doesn't have sin. Do you see that? He's making a point about our holiness, our call to live holy lives. John's point is that if Jesus was sinless, then his followers won't tolerate sin. Now granted, there's some confusing words here. I'm not going to have time to get into all this. Um, Verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Right, whoop, whoop, there went all of us. Have you kept on sinning? The answer is yes. (laughs) I have. We all have. Verse 7, or excuse me, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So, what's going on here? Well, I want to just quickly say these verses seem to be, though they seem to be implying that a, a sinless perfection is required to really prove that we know God, that can't be what John's saying because over in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's better to understand these verses over here in chapter 3 as saying something like, if we live in sin, if we remain there, abide there, then our claims to live in God aren't credible. Mason touched on this in training class this morning. I'll probably butcher it. Forgive me, Mason said something to the effect of, you know, it's, it's not about... Um, oh, help me out here, Mason. Anyways. <laughs> you, you don't know either. So we're, so we're agreeing. We're on the same page. 
If we live in sin, then our claims to live in God aren't credible. Oh, I know what it was. It was this, hey, a fruit of the Spirit is that when you feel bad about something horrible you've done, that's actually good because it's the fruit of the Spirit's work in you. The, the danger is, the problem is, for you or I, is that if you, you know, you're doing bad things and you don't feel anything. You feel nothing. I think that's along the lines of what John is getting at. If we live, if we live there, love there, love living there, build our house there, are happy there, refuse anyone who contradicts our cho- choices to live there, we tune out all the voices around us, including the Bible, God's own voice, and justify and rationalize and defend our rights to live there in sin, then our claims to live in God aren't credible. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. No one who abides in Him keeps on sin- sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen, seen Him or known Him. So John's overall point here is simple. Jesus came to take away our sin, therefore we must put away our sin. Jesus came to take away our sin, so we must put away our sin. To put it another way, we can put away our sin because Jesus has taken away our sin. That's the good news. The only sin that we can repent of is forgiven sin. In May of 1780... The skies grew dark in New England, and many people thought it was the day of judgment. This was before weather and news and social media. They thought it was the day of judgment that Jesus' return was intimate. turns out that it was just the result of forest fires up north in Canada. But, like good Puritans, they were very anxious about the Lord's return. The Connecticut state legislature even debated whether they should continue their session because the darkness, because of the darkness, because some assumed that their work was pointless now if Jesus was going to come back any moment. <laughs> Which makes sense. Like, oh, Jesus is coming back. I'm done here today, <laughs> right? Can we go home now? <laughs> one senator, though, wisely said, one senator, Connecticut state legislature said, quote, let God do His work and we will see to ours. Bring in the candles. Let God do His work. We'll see to ours. Bring in the candles. God, in other words, for our purposes, God has done the heavy lifting of removing the penalty of our sin, breaking the power of our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. Our job now is to fight with all of our might to remove the presence of sin. Let God do His work and we will do ours. Let God do His work, we will do ours. To skip ahead a bit, notice the end of verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Purifies Himself. He doesn't say, wait around, let God purify you. No, Christian, purify yourself. Purify yourself. Do it. God's done the heavy lifting. Let God do His work. You see to yours. Jesus took away our sin so we can put away our sin. And I get it. This can sound overwhelming. If you're prone to be very introspective, this can be very overwhelming because we have so much sin to put away. You may think, no, 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 I'm doing pretty good. I'm actually okay. But I'd encourage you to take some time, start analyzing not just your actions, your words, 
your conduct, but maybe start analyzing your motives. Why do you do the things you do? Do you not see selfishness everywhere? I do. Not in you. (laughs) In me. As we analyze our motives, we'll start to see just how much the cancer cancer of sin has spread in our souls. Others of us may really be struggling to see any progress at all in our lives. We feel like we're not even a Christian because of our sins. It may help you to compare how you feel about Jesus, the Bible, the gospel, the church today compared to how you, how you felt about those things last year, five years ago. Has there been any movement forward? You may be farther along than you think. And you're feeling really crummy and terrible is again fruit of the Spirit's work. Just don't stay there. Just don't. Jesus took away your sin so you can put it away. So you can put it away. John Newton said, I love this. Please write this down. Okay? It's John Newton. So it has to be inspired, right? He said, quote, I'm not what I want to be or ought to be, but I'm not what I once was. By God's grace, I am what I am. I'm not what I want to be or ought to be, but I'm not what I once was. By God's grace, I am what I am. Are you any further along today than you were last year, five years ago, 30 years ago? Praise God. That's that's the fruit of the Spirit's work. He took away your sins, so you've put away sin, and you're still putting away sin. You're still fighting. If you're done fighting, then be concerned. If you're still in the fight, praise God. I'm not what I want to be or ought to be, but I'm not what I once was. By God's grace, I am what I am. If we've been washed clean by Jesus' blood, our lives will start to look more and more like Jesus. But then notice, I want to point this out. Uh, 8, 9, and 10. Those who claim to know God, but continue to consistently pursue sinful behavior, means they are of the devil. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is heavy. This means... Our unrepentant sin has a demonic angle, demonic nature. The evil one is at work in our unrepentant sinning. He says they're of the devil. They're doing what the devil does, sinning. He says uh, the devil's been doing this from the beginning, meaning Genesis 1-4 through where we learn that from the beginning the devil has been trying to undo God's work in the world. Namely, by keeping people from doing God's will, that is, causing people to sin. That's the devil's work. Undo God's work by keeping people from doing God's will, namely, causing people to sin, tempting people to sin, encouraging people to sin. But John says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 8, the reason... I love that he doesn't qualify this, by the way. There are other reasons why Jesus appeared, but right here he says, the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, Christus Victor. To destroy, not barter with, negotiate with, to even fight, but to destroy, to wipe out, snuff out, finish the works of the devil. 
Meaning that through his death, Jesus' death for sin, he destroyed the devil's work because the devil's work is to get us to sin. John is saying that we must not be led astray by anyone who suggests that sin doesn't matter. He's saying that sin must matter because Jesus died to destroy the devil's work. The devil's work is to, to get us to sin, lead people to sin. But Jesus has destroyed the devil's work, so we should be destroying our sin. Do you see what he's saying? If Jesus showed up to destroy the devil's work, and the devil's work is sin, then your sin is more serious than you realize. And, and Jesus came to destroy it. Destroy the one who feeds it, encourages it. And thankfully this work isn't something we're left on our own to do. Holiness isn't a matter of our willpower. Notice in verse 9 this interesting word picture John uses. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. God's seed abides in him. God's seed lives in them. Scholar Colin Cruz calls this a most daring metaphor. And I agree completely. A most daring metaphor because the word seed is the word sperma. I think you know what that means. Do you see what John is saying? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because, for, because God's sperma abides in him. So John is saying that God's sperm is in us. What is he talking about? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's related to what John means when he talks about believers being born of God. No one born of God, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For more on that idea, read John 3. Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Being born of God means being given new spiritual life by the will of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're born of God by God, the Holy Spirit. So, verse 9, God's seed, God's sperma living in us, most naturally refers to God's Spirit living in us. God's Spirit living in us. Remember chapter 2, verse 20 from a couple weeks ago? You've been anointed by the Holy One. You've been anointed, washed, covered, filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is inside of us. God came into us, giving us new spiritual life so that we can do the works of God, destroy the works of the enemy. The Holy Spirit inside of us is why we can fight and kill sin. Without the Holy Spirit, we would keep on sinning just like the devil. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, so those who know Jesus will also destroy the works of the devil in their lives by the power of the Spirit of Christ in them. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. This is the Baptist church. Come on. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. Amen. Did you know without the Holy Spirit you wouldn't be a Christian? You wouldn't love Christ? You wouldn't even care at all about obeying Christ? Every good thing you have spiritually is because of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we need to be more Pentecostal. I don't know. The Holy Spirit inside of us is why we can fight sin. God's seed lives in you. God's seed lives in you. God's, God Himself 
lives in the house of your body. We just sang about this. Kind of cool. Didn't plan that, by the way. Thanks for whoever, Mason, Preston. That second song we did, what was it called again? I am not my own. Right out of 1 Corinthians 6. I am not mine. This body is not my own. This is, Paul says this body is a temple for what? Who, I should say? Who? The Holy Spirit. God Himself living in us. God's seed given to us. The, the imparting of the life of God creates a life that looks like God's. The imparting of the life of God creates a life that looks like God's. So in other words, back to my beginning, my intro, how do you know if you're following Jesus? Does your life look more like Jesus? God's Spirit. In other words, it's, it shouldn't be rocket surgery to look at life, individual lives and say, I see a life that is looking more and more like God or not so much. And God is the ultimate arbiter of these things, not us. But we aren't left in the, dark, in the dark just to say, well, only God knows. If God's seed lives in us, then God's life will start to be produced in us. Jesus' first coming was to take away sins, so God's people are those who put away sin, which reveals whether we're children of God or children of the devil. That's number one. Jesus' first coming compels us to live like Him. Number two, Jesus' second coming also compels us to live like Him. This is the first part of the text, 228 through 33. 228, and now little children abide in Him, live in Him, remain in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The main thing to see here is that is the connection between Jesus' second appearing and our call to live holy lives. In 2.28, John says that abiding in Christ prepares us for His return. Then verse 29, he tells us that abiding in Christ means practicing righteousness. Abide in Him so that when He appears, he's talking about His future appearance, His second coming. Abide in Him so that you'll have confidence when He comes, not shame. And then 29, the way that looks is be righteous, practice righteousness. John 15, as Maddie read earlier, Jesus tells His disciples to abide in His love. So instead of just saying, abide in me, Jesus says, abide in my love. John 15, 9. And then right after that, 15, 10, He says that obeying His commandments is what reveals that we're, we're abiding in His love. So abiding results in obeying. Abiding in Christ means obeying Christ. Results in obeying, obeying Christ. But what is that love? So abide in His love. Abide in the love of Christ. What, that's kind of ambiguous. What does that love look like? You probably agree that God loves you. What does that mean? Do you, do you stop and think about that? What does it mean that God loves you? Chapter 3, verse 1. Look. 
See what kind of love? He's literally telling us how God loves us. See what kind of love? Maybe your translation says how great the love of the Father is. The ESV says what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Look, I love all children, but my kids. Hey, Elisha, that's your cue. My kids have a special, unending, forever, they can, no matter what they do, kind of love. Right? I love them in a way I don't love anybody else. I love all you guys, but you're not my kids. I love my kids because they're my kids. I delight in them. I delight in them. I delight in them. I love them and like them. Unless we're driving for 15 hours on the way home from Florida yesterday. <clears throat> and then the Lord starts to reveal whether I really believe this stuff or not. See what kind of love? What, what, what kind of love does God have for you? That we should be called children of God. And we aren't just, we aren't just called God's, God's children. We are God's children. That's why that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We aren't just called that. Elisha isn't, I don't just call him my son. He is my son. He is my son. No matter what. That will never change. If you are in Christ, your sonship, daughtership will never change. You are his child. You're like, John, but what? You don't know what I've done. I know. He does. And later in 1 John, he's going to say, even if your heart condemns you, God doesn't condemn you because God knows everything. See what, kind of, see what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called God's children. Then he says that being the children of God won't gain us any respect with the world. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. If an unbelieving world full of people opposed to God didn't recognize Jesus, then they won't recognize us either. But we aren't living for the love of this world. Well, the honest truth is, let's be honest, a lot of times we are living for the love of this world. We're grasping, we're hungering, we're, we want the loves of this world. But see what kind of love the Father has given to us? We're the children of God. We're not just His servants, you know. We're not just His, we're not just his slaves. We aren't just His creation. We're His children. We're His children. Then in verse 2, He says that what we are now stands in contrast to what we will be later. I love this. <clears throat> Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Is this interesting? So there's, there's something true about us now, God's children, but what we will be, we don't, we don't know what we're going to be like yet. Again, piggyback on what Mason said. Your hopes for heaven are probably not big enough. There is more coming. What we will be hasn't yet appeared. There's... There's a mysterious expectation. One of my professors in seminary said, um, out over the horizon there is more, oh, so much more. Or no, he said, it, you can see so much from the shore, right? When you're standing on the beach, you can see only so much from the shore, but out over the horizon there is more, oh, so much more. We don't know what we're going to look like yet. But when we see him, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. 
Do you see what he's saying? Even the sight of Jesus will be so profoundly powerful that we'll be changed to be like him. His glory will be so weighty and huge and massive, it will just fall on us in such, to such a degree that we'll change in the twinkling of an eye, we'll become like him. Paul says the same thing. He helps us understand what John means. Philippians 3.21 The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control. Our lowly lowly body, amen? Lowly body? You guys are like, oh, I got glorious body over here. No, no, no. Our lowly bodies, our little bodies that get so bent out of shape, you know, even, even a headache puts me in bed for like 14 days, you know? Our lowly bodies, just at the sight of Jesus, will be transformed into glorious bodies. And the reason for this change, again, is because we shall see Him. We shall see Jesus as He is. Again, Paul helps us understand John's meaning. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When Jesus When Jesus returns, we will see Him in all His glory, and just the sight of Him will be enough to transform our lowly bodies into glorious and immortal new bodies. Now that's all good, but that's actually not the main thing John is trying to say here. His point is verse 3. He's rehearsing these doctrines. He's giving us sound theology about the return of Christ to make a really practical point, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. So John is, not, John is not just after theology. John is after lives that have been changed now. Our, our bodies will be changed later, but John is actually saying, no, 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 no. If you actually believe that, then your life will start to change now. Then there will be a transformation even now. He's saying that the hope of being like Jesus in the future expresses itself in a desire to be like Jesus in the present. Hope, he says, hope creates purity. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself. But notice that Jesus' purity is the goal. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure, as Jesus is pure. Christians understand that we aren't the ones who decide what's pure and impure. John says that our purity should be a reflection of Jesus' purity. We purify ourselves as He is pure. So again, the goal is to look more like Jesus, which begs the question for all of us to consider, do our lives reflect the purity of Jesus? Do our words and thoughts and actions and attitudes reflect the purity of Jesus? Do the things that come in and flow into our minds and in front of our eyes and our ears, do, do these things help us grow in the purity of Jesus, what we watch, listen to, talk about, laugh at, enjoy is entertainment. Do these things grow us in the purity of Jesus? Well, what we often do is say, well, I don't, I don't do what that person does or watch what they watch, listen to what they listen to, so I'm, I'm actually okay, I'm doing all right. But John says the standard is Jesus. Purify himself, purify yourself as he is pure. Jesus is the standard, not the person we typically compare ourselves to. 
So it's good to ask ourselves, would Jesus do what we do? Or maybe better, would I do what I do if Jesus, if Jesus was literally sitting next to me? And it turns out He's even closer than that. By the Holy Spirit, He's inside of you. Our standard of purity is Jesus, not our friends or family, not our culture, not what we see on the internet. If Jesus wouldn't do it, then neither should we. If we wouldn't do it in front of Jesus, then we shouldn't do it. I know exhortations like this sound like moralism, but it's not because the basis under all this is the gospel I've been preaching for the previous 35 minutes. If we have this great hope, then it will create a desire to want to live like the one who gave it to us. Paul said it this way, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Let us cleanse ourselves. Not let us sit down and pray, 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 and ask God just to do something because we just can't do it. No, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1 We have promises. We have hope. So we do all we can to wash our lives of anything impure, anything we'd be ashamed of Jesus catching us doing when He returns. Now, one of the things that can happen in a church like ours with a very high view of Scripture and a commitment to sound doctrine is actually that we could start caring about doctrinal purity more than moral purity. John says both are important. If you don't believe the right things, if you don't live the right way, you're not in. Paul tells Timothy to keep, to keep a close watch on his life and his teaching. His life and His doctrine. So we need to guard against being quick to point out theological mistakes and slow to deal with our secret sins. I've done this. done this for years. This is what a PhD program does to you. <laughs> it creates in you, frankly, an overreaction sometimes. In doctrinal matters, while ignoring what John seems to be saying here is of fundamental importance. Okay, you believe the right things, great. Is there anyone who knows all of the things going on behind the scenes? Anybody you talk to who gets the unedited version? You know, I even heard, like, if someone only knows 99%, then you aren't fully known. You're still hiding. You're still hiding. So are, are we, are we, you and I, just as zealous about sound doctrine, about moral purity as we are about sound doctrine? May God make us just as passionate about purity as we are about doctrinal precision. Both are important. Let's be passionate about both. So what John's doing here, again, is he's just saying there's a fundamental connection between knowing God and doing righteousness. Those who claim to know God will live a certain way. There are things they won't do that everyone else is doing. There are things they will do that no one else is doing. 
John's argument is that Jesus' first coming and his second coming compel us to live lives that look like his. We don't have to just be told, hey, live like Jesus. We have lots of reasons, really good reasons, to live like him because he came for us. He came to rescue us, and he's coming to rescue us again. He came to rescue us from sin, and he's going to come to rescue us from this earth and bring us into a new heaven and new earth. If Jesus has put his righteousness on us, brothers and sisters, then His righteousness will start to come out of us. Those who wear His righteous robes will want to live lives that please the one who put those robes on. Let's pray together. Father, there's so many impossible ways to apply, an endless number of ways to apply the things I'm saying. Only you know where we all are. So I pray that you would deal with us by your spirit with tenderness and grace and mercy and patience and clarity. Help us to see the things we need to see. Help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to see the beauty of righteousness and the ugliness of sin. Help us to know that we are loved, that we are, that you love us so much that you Call us your children. Help us to remember that you're coming back for us. That we will see you face to face. We'll be like you. We'll be given... Your, Jesus, you even say, we'll be given your kingdom. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. May these things inspire lots of hope in us and also lots of courage to face the things in our lives that we need to face, to confess our sins to you and to confess our sins to one another and to fight together, to fight together, to, to put away our sin because you've taken away our sin. Send your Holy Spirit because we cannot do this. We, we won't even want to do this unless your Spirit comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.